Welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 12. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glyn from London, discuss what Pollen did well around its engineering culture before its collapse, what old tech is still actively used, and other items that have caught our attention this week. If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn. Great to be here. Great to be talking to you again. So today, I follow the Pragmatic Engineer. He does some great blog posts and uh, talks on some really interesting topics. And one that cropped up recently that I thought would be worth worth discussion today is what Pollen did well before its collapse. For those that haven't read the article or know what Pollen is, Pollen is like an event ticket space type organization that has failed quite dramatically this year. I think it was around June. But this Pragmatic Engineer blog post actually touched on some really interesting points around what they call it in the section called First Impressions about how they actually ran the engineering team and that most engineers and like salespeople really actually liked working at the company. So I thought the first topic of conversation today is actually to go through some of the key points they mentioned about why their engineering culture was appreciated. A few things in there I wasn't sure about, but yeah, it'd be great to just hear your view on some of these pieces as well. So the first topic that was raised of what the of what the employees liked most when they were working there was uh, the remote work capability so flexible working hours this was even before covid-19 started hitting us i can definitely see that as being a big key point for engineers liking working for a particular organization and they were doing that before covid is that right I believe so, yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for sending the article. It's uh there's a lot of criticism over how things were handled there but by all accounts, it was a very happy engineering team. And yeah, remote work, I mean, we certainly see now how much people value it. A lot of people are talking now about, is it, is it where you work? The ability to go to the office or the need to go to the office or when you work? What is really moving the needle? But absolutely, there's so much validation now that the ability to work when and where you want is a huge motivator. And it's a, a great life work balance. So I would say that was very forward thinking of them to do that early, especially before COVID. Absolutely. And then the second topic was um, a career path. So the managers used to spend a lot of time helping the existing engineers set a career path and have a trajectory for that. I mean, that's a really interesting one because I don't feel I've ever been in an organization where they've been able to do that well. Their career path is always something within inside the organization. Oh, we're going to give you training, but it's going to be on this programming language because that's the language we're moving to. Or it's going to be on something that benefits them as well. So I've always had the impression that my career is my responsibility. So therefore, I've never really paid much attention to a career path in an organization because I've always determined my own before I even join from that perspective. Yeah, I kind of look at it the same way, but I actually have been in a uh, in a position where there was really good mentoring uh, and career support, and it was wonderful. And when I have people working for me, I definitely try to work with them and help them to organize and navigate their own careers. And people really, really appreciate it. It's a wonderful thing. But I see it not so much as a way that Pollen or any company may attract employees, because everyone says there's career mobility. You know, you see that on a sign in front of the McDonald's. So there's always upward uh, advancement available, but more of a retention thing. It's a great way of managing employees is to dig in with them if they're open and help their career. So I suspect that was um, 
not one of the ways that Pawn attracted employees, but one of the ways that they main, that they retained them and kept them happy. So I love it. And I have experienced that and it was, it was very good. So good stuff. I could definitely see that from a, if you've got a good manager that can help you with your direction, maybe not, it's not in line with the company's direction, but they can at least point you the right direction for areas that you want to be moving into. Maybe it's SecOps, maybe it's more architecture understanding. It's going to be, you know, you're going to be happy to work there because you feel like your career is actually cared about inside the organization. As you talk about retention, that's a key thing, isn't it? Yeah, especially in engineering. Definitely. And one of the next ones was a hot company raising a new round every year. Now, you see, I've got an issue with this. So when they say raise a new round every year, how many people before they apply for a job actually do so much due diligence against the organization to see how often their funding rounds have been to be able to say, yes, this is a company that is raising every year. And is is that not even a warning sign? Because obviously they've got a high burn rate if they need to raise every 12 months. Yeah. Here we have a combination of... You know, it looks like a hot company, right? A company says, oh, I've got my Series A, Series B, $100 million, $200 million. And you go on LinkedIn and there's pictures. Everybody's congratulating you. It's fantastic. Now you're a hot company. So people kind of gravitate towards that. You're a shiny object. But in the last few years, and especially in the last year or so, we see more employees being skeptical of that and seeing that these companies that are wildly funded don't always work out. Not every story is like we work where you just keep throwing money and somehow it survives. So I think it's a combination. I suspect that the hotness of the company did attract a lot of people for pollen because this was a couple of three years ago and it was before the skepticism was so high. But right now, I think you don't get as much uh, attention and traction just because you got a giant check. But then there's uh, Adam Newman getting another giant check for his you know, business. So this one's sort of in flux. I think it did help them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's a pretty incoherent answer, but... I can imagine this being more of a Silicon Valley side thing where they're they're very interested to see which industry, which companies are going to become the next big thing because that's a big tick on their career path. Where in the UK, we don't have the same type of mindset or the same type of companies really to really care about that. So normally it's more about interesting challenges, interesting problems, what's my role, rather than is this just a hot company? And Pollen was about influencers... And uh, it was about shiny objects. That's what the company was about. So it seems like they're even more well-positioned to use their own sizzle to attract people. Definitely. I'd be happy to write some code for Jay-Z, of course. (laughs) Cool. Then the next one is salary transparency. This is like a whole topic on itself. Not many companies give complete salary transparency about what the brackets are and where everyone sits. So, I mean... Would you consider that a big plus from your perspective, Dave? I would, personally. I think it's an amazing thing. There was just a a law passed in California that is promoting or or enforcing uh, things like this. Uh, It's becoming very popular, doing it in New York. So for an ethics conversation uh, that we can have another time, it's wonderful. I don't know that so many people value it yet, especially since the demographic in engineering tends to be the same demographic that is sort of the beneficiary of all these hidden salaries and all of that. So in other words, it's a bunch of, you know, white men making a lot of money, and that's not really who those laws are for. But again, kudos to them for the progressive forward thinking. I doubt that really attracted a lot of people, but it was a good thing that they did. 
So good for them. And obviously good compensation. That's obvious. Everyone wants to be paid well. A limited vacation. There's always a, a hidden stick behind that. So, you know, it's like, sounds great. But they did actually state that they wanted a minimum of, I think it was 26 or 30 days taken holiday. So they did define a minimum, but they also had unlimited vacation. But I've never worked in an organization with that. And if I was in such a company like now, I would feel so cautious about going over what my standard allowance would be. Because every time I go on holiday, I've got twice the amount of work to get to when I come back. So a limited vacation sounds more stressful. Yeah, and everybody's all talking about how much vacation everyone else took. So that's a unlimited vacation is a weird thing. Good compensation, I suspect, remains at the top of the list for what people really want. Money seems to be the main driver. And why shouldn't it be? You know, I don't really have a problem with it. You, if you pay well, you attract a lot of people. Same here. You know, I remember being in a like a round table very early in my CTO days and we're talking about compensation and hiring people. And they were saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we offer 10% over the market rate for all of our developers. I'm like, okay, I offer minus 10% for all of our developers because literally we can't afford it. But therefore, I then have to fight a lot harder to find interesting people. And there's an understanding that they're with us for six months, 12 months, they get some great experience working with me and then they can jump up to the next level. But obviously, it's not nice to be in a situation where you have to pay below the market rate. And obviously, you know, you're open and transparent about it, what the benefits are outside of that, because obviously everybody knows what their expectation of wage should be. And paying too much has its own problems. You know, it, it develops a weird culture and it, I don't know, you can poison the well if you're overpaying everyone. I'd be happy to be paid too much, Dave. Well, maybe you are paid too much. <laughs> you seem happy. It's possible. <laughs> I hope my manager's not paying attention to this podcast. Next one, strong engineering talent. And this is what I think is actually one of the biggest ones. When you're in interviews, when you are interviewing people, people are technically interviewing you. They want to see who they're working with on a daily basis. And they want to see strong managers, strong engineering talents around them. What's the phrase? You don't want, you know, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room, especially in the early days of your career, you want to be surrounded by smart, intelligent people. So yeah, that's a massive attraction from my perspective for any developer moving into an organization. Yeah, it might, again, be more for retention because when you're coming into the company, you're being interviewed and you get a little glimpse, but you don't really know. But if Pollen really did put together a very strong engineering team, there's a lot of synergy and the management is mentoring and the, you know, the more junior people are, are learning and feeding back and there's just general happiness. It sounds like they put together an excellent team uh, and hence the happiness and retention was good. They did a lot of things right going through this list. And just to round it off a little bit, I'd probably say the high Glassdoor rating. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I know that, especially now with a lot of organizations that have been cutting employees and now having to hire again, I'm seeing a lot of things on LinkedIn saying, you know, please check the Glassdoor ratings to see what it's actually like to work in that company and culture. Normally... Glassdoor ratings are just from people that have been fired or left and are unhappy. You know, if you've been in a company two, three years, you're going to get, you know, the shines come off the business and you're going to see things a little bit more coldly than if you're still working there. So yeah, I've always taken it with a pinch of salt, but obviously that can be a warning sign whether the organization is actually a good culture to work in. I have a personal policy to never look at Glassdoor. I just don't know what to make of it. I agree the reviews can be very skewed. Sometimes not, but it's so difficult to know what's going on there. I don't really know. I think a lot of people do look at it, but I'm not sure how much of a draw that is. I suspect it's not that important. You know, I think, um, and probably if you have a good 
group, which the, clearly they did. The glass door was pretty good, but probably it was the money and the Justin Bieber that brought people in and got their attention. So I, I think Glassdoor probably was not that important. So to summarize this all off then, I mean, from reading through how that engineering side of the business was structured, it sounded like it was super impressive, really well managed. They even had like clear, diverse hiring with a strong focus on the engineering side. So it sounds like the perfect company to work for. And obviously it's a shame that a company that on paper looks like they had such great policies and all developers were happy that they weren't able to be financially sustainable to last longer than the time they did. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it seems at a high level, they had a huge amount of money. They were making a lot of noise. They've got Justin Bieber hanging around. I mean, they've got their own kind of social influency play. So they were very good at presenting themselves. And they just went through a, long, a list of all the things that you need to do um, to build an excellent engineering team, brought in some really good leadership, and checked all the boxes. Um, most companies can't do that because it's very, very expensive. And I wonder if they spent too much money building this fantastic team. Um, but if had it not been for COVID, which is what they attribute their failure to, to some degree, do you think that Pollen would have survived? The reason for their failure is not completely clear. As you read through it, essentially, everything's great is what's been communicated to the entire team until everything wasn't. So it could be managerial, managerial issue, could be financial management issue. It could be that the idea just wasn't you know, like their their technology, their product, and what they were trying to aim to achieve just wasn't going to appeal to the masses. There's so many things. I I don't. I'm not personally in a situation where I understand clearly what the failure of the business was, and I wouldn't want to speculate on that. But it sounds like the engineering side wasn't the problem. It wasn't system downtime, undelivered features. You know, that's not the type of conversation that's happening. Maybe it is the case that if you give the developers everything they want in a, in a situation like this, it is too expensive to run them. I hope that's not the case because that's a very depressing world we live in, if that is. But it sounds like it was more of a long-term, you know, long-term investment strategy, and especially with businesses that do burn money at a very high rate because they're trying to scale so quickly. If that money suddenly dries up due to a pandemic or due to a recession, you're not going to still be standing in six to 12 months. Yeah. And a great takeaway is there is no level of engineering excellence that will make up for a questionable business model or, you know, a business is not its technology. Software is a, is a, is a tool. Um, doesn't matter how good the code is if there's not enough revenue. <laughs> so Absolutely. Great point to finish that topic on there. Okay, so moving on to something that's a little bit nuanced. Moving away from old tech is what I've called this. So I was reading a Business, business Insider's post about J uh, Japan calls for the end of the floppy disks. You know, I thought this would have been released 20 years ago. But floppy disks has still been used for 1900 government procedures in Japan. So yeah, I thought it'd be just an interesting topic to raise about what old technology still exists from what you've seen, Dave, especially around the time when you probably were building these things. No offense there, but you know. <laughs> you mean in, in the 50s? <laughs> in the 50s. I mean, the interesting thing about floppy disks is I didn't think that the memory would last that long. I would have thought anything that was written to a floppy disk would have, um, you know, they don't have a very long shelf life. The data degrades really quick, well, really quickly in, in the space of 20 years, definitely. So it's interesting to see that there's still government level systems globally that are still trying to utilize this old technology. Everybody's enjoying the story. We're lampooning Japan, talking about floppies and how ridiculous that is. But, you know, 
it was only, I think, three or four years ago that they finally got rid of the eight-inch floppy disks, which are even more ridiculous, at the Department of Defense in the U.S. So, I don't know, this is happening everywhere. I suspect over in the U.K., there is some absurdly old technology going around. So, it's, it's going on everywhere. Windows XP is supported for much longer than I would expect it to be, and it is a vital part of key infrastructure inside the UK. That's somehow more frightening than the floppy thing, <laughs> even though it's not as old. So, you know, it is, it is what it is. Um, I've done a lot of public sector work back in the day and got a really good look um, at what it's like to be inside government. And it's pretty easy to see how these things happen, especially in public sector. In public sector, uh, it's not a business. It's not revenue-driven. So even the risk of, say, being hacked or something like that is not really a monetary risk to the people that are actually standing there holding the floppy disk. It's a different thing. It's a different culture. So now you have a lot of people that are very risk-averse. And moving out of the floppy disk world or the COBOL or the Fortran or whatever you have brings a whole lot of risk of its own. You have to figure out how to do that. You have to do organizational change. Change management is difficult in public sector, and it's very daunting. And then you've got this little floppy disk, which is sort of like a post-it note that I use on my desk every day. And they never run out of battery. They never crash. I have a pen in my hand as I speak. So they work. And there's a lot of that in government. It's It takes a lot. There you go. <laughs> to be a uh, I have a floppy disk coaster, so that's the closest thing to an actual floppy disk I have in this house. <laughs> Not bad. I would enjoy a floppy disk post-it, like a post-it that looks like a floppy disk. That would actually be kind of... They do exist. I'm pretty sure I've seen those too. Well, that's what I want for Christmas. Okay, there we go. So I, I do get it. I think that there's a lot of criticism for governments using these old technologies, but it's easy to see how it happens and why it happens. It also happens in banking. We see it in the medical industry quite a bit, but there, there is a, a financial potential gain to moving forward. So if you could get, if we can get the United States to stop using fax machines every day, millions and millions of things are faxed around because of the way these medical systems and protocols work. If we can get out of that, there's a lot of money to be made and people are working on that problem, but it's still happening. You go to any pharmacy in the States and you hear the fax machine going, it's ridiculous. So People get entrenched in technology because of the risk of moving forward. I get it. But it's very, very painful. And if it's not broken, don't fix it type of mindset. Essentially, this has worked for 20 years. It still does the job I need it to. Why would I change it now and spend lots of money invested in something that I don't feel I need at this exact moment? Yeah. And I think the the takeaway for me um, as like a technology professional is we can look at that and say, hey, Using COBOL or a um, a floppy disk in the Department of Defense, that's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. There's security issues, and there's just a laundry list of reasons that we should not do that. But if you look at it as a technical problem, and you just say, look, let's put in this solution, which is much better. We can build it. It'll be done. You're missing the point. It's not about technology. It's about organizational dynamics. It's about culture. It's about risk aversion change management, politics, um, things like that. And those are very, very real problems. And it is a great technology leader who can get involved in the public sector and get the funding to actually move forward, get it through the government quickly enough so that 
by the time you get your funding, your plan is not already obsolete, which happens in government, and then actually execute on what is sort of a mission-critical thing when you're uh, handling taxes, health records, uh, social security, program, things like that, um, court records. It's mission-critical in a different way. So it's no picnic. So I think as technology leaders, probably both of us have experienced many times where you have a business that has a problem and the engineers are coming at it as a technical problem. We just need to fix this. We just need to add this, change the framework, rewrite the code. When in fact, it's a very complicated organizational problem that goes much more than engineering. And so if we really want to step up as technology leaders, we will support our governments and big clunky institutions in moving forward and fixing these problems, which is a daunting nightmare that, uh, you know, I'm no longer in that business, but I've done my time <laughs> in public sector and uh, wow, it's no picnic. Have you ever heard of 18F, the uh, agile group in the United States government? They're very proud of it. It's a uh, part of the GSA organization and they, um, they're bringing agile mentality to the rest of the government. So if you have a big clunky government program, but you want to be agile, you go to the 18F group and they will help you execute. And as much as I applaud their effort, it's like, you know, they're 15 years too late and they really are not very agile. It just shows you that even at their best, a large government, it's very, very difficult uh, for them to get it done. For a little government like Lithuania, it's totally different, right? Because the whole country is the size of, uh, of some cities. So they're doing amazing things, but it's scale, right? And it's also the, um, the countries and the institutions that were the earliest adopters become entrenched. So you can also say that countries like Japan and the UK, France, Germany, the US, they are well-developed countries with strong economies. So it was 50, 60 years ago that we were building internet, mobile phone systems, electric grids, bridges, infrastructures, um, and Department of Defense computers, and all these things, where a lot of other countries didn't have that at all. Now, those things are falling apart, and they're getting old, and we're kind of stuck with this difficult change management. Whereas a country like, uh, like if you go to China, the infrastructure is all new. Every airport is just glistening, because they weren't really replacing anything. So... It's a mixed bag. I feel I, I feel bad for Japan to be in the same situation that all the other highly developed countries are in with this old stuff. But well, what are you going to do? You and I need to fix this problem. Is that right, Dave? Oh my goodness, that that's a weekend task that's going to take up a lot of my time. I think. Yeah, I mean, look, with, like COBOL's a great example. How many of those developers still exist right now that haven't retired or died off due to old age? Essentially, the skills that built these systems are not going to be here for much longer, and then it becomes a critical piece of infrastructure change for a country where they then have to throw even more money at money at it because no one knows how it works. So therefore, they have to rip it out and put something new in, and then then work out all the challenges afterwards. Uh, but you are absolutely right where you're saying that, you know, the first movers in the space got embedded into it. Like, you know, Africa doesn't have like broadband lines, doesn't need to. Everything's mobile based. So therefore, that's how they live. And they're, you know, absolutely fine with it. They skip the whole pound of wire, you know, put copper wire into the ground and then try to upgrade it to fiber. They just do it straight over the air. 
but yeah okay great great it's uh it's interesting to definitely hear that point of view there and yeah there's a lot of challenges which i think are going to crop up more over the next 20 years and as you say there are organizations trying to fix this it is hilarious that they're using floppy disks though i mean it's it is fun to to you know to to make fun of all the other countries that are suffering from the same thing we're suffering from at least they're not punch cards let's put it that way okay then so what's caught your attention this week then dave what caught my attention was the uh, purchase of Figma Boo. by Adobe. Everybody hates Adobe. Everybody hates Adobe. And up until very recently, Figma did not love Adobe either. Right? I mean, there, Dylan Field, who I think is, uh, I mean, he's a, I think he's a fantastic entrepreneur. I think he did everything right. And it's really impressive. So I'm not really criticizing any of it. I'm good. But he did kind of support the idea of Figma being the, quote, Adobe killer. That phrase was used quite a bit. He did say just a year ago, you know, our goal is to be Figma, not Adobe. And now he's being called out for that quote. And it's a little bit painful because this purchase shows us once and for all that when a startup comes and they say, we are going to invent a new blank to disrupt the blank industry and usher in a new utopian way, everything's going to be great and we're all about disruption and they're using the word disruption a lot and everybody gets very excited about it. Make no mistake, no matter how much they are disrupting, it is a business and when there is a $20 billion payout, and I think he owns 9% of that or something, he's He's, he's got a pretty big chunk of it, then they sell out. And so I'm not really that critical. If somebody offered me $2 billion, suddenly I love Adobe. But I think it's just right. Uh, come on. And he did very well for himself. But I just think it's, a, it's a, just a good example <laughs> I think of how let's like not that. get too invested in all these startup tales about how we're disrupting everything and changing the world. It's a business. It's a good business. It's a great product. Hopefully, Adobe doesn't kill it. I'm happy for Dylan Field. I'm very interested to see if the U.S. Uh, SEC sees this as an antitrust matter because everybody's pointing fingers at Instagram and Facebook and all that. But if ever there was an antitrust case, this might be the one. Adobe just swallowed up their main disruptive competitor, uh, leaving them kind of alone in a wide ocean uh, of revenue. We'll see if the SEC takes it up. Anyways, great story, though. I'm happy for Dylan Field. Hopefully, Adobe doesn't uh, screw it up. But of course, they will, right? Yeah, I mean, as you say about regulation, I don't think Adobe is known by anyone in any parliament. So therefore, they won't see it as uh, an issue. So therefore, it has to... Because they're like quiet uh, company? Exactly. Well, they're, they're not in the social space. They're not uh, one of the big Mang organizations. So therefore, they're, you know, who's going to be ringing them up, telling them to go fight big tech and say, oh, yeah, we're fighting Adobe. And they're like, who? You know, so it's like, it's not going to, I'll be surprised if they do actually block it. I agree they should, because there are no other strong competitors in the market. But again, Photoshop was purchased by Adobe originally so therefore it's not like they built the product themselves and they've i didn't know that and they are fully aware that figma's going to completely take their lunch so if they you know people say it's a ridiculous valuation 
But if you look in five years' time where Photoshop's completely dead and Figma's taken over the world, it's like, well, we should have done that. It's like the whole Kodak issue or like, you know, Blockbuster, you know, they should have done Netflix. They could have done it, but, you know, they could have bought them and didn't. And therefore, this is probably a similar thing where if Adobe wasn't able to adapt and handle this, then, yeah, they weren't they weren't going to be around long enough. So... But do you mean that the governments are... Uh, how can they pay attention to what's happening with Adobe when there's... TikTok and Meta and all of these big players around, or are you saying they literally just don't even know about it? Because Adobe is very quiet. It is. It is. I mean, essentially, when people say Adobe, they think, oh, that's how I open PDF files. You know, that's that's all they think of. I mean, um, so unless if you are a designer or developer that's had to deal with a designer, you don't know what Photoshop is. And, you know, they're a massive suite, which costs a ridiculous amount of money. So Figma's come in and completely destroyed that. I only went on Figma for the first time about three, four years ago when they started to get big. And I was just like, why has this not existed before? It's a fantastic product. And it has been getting better. So we use it heavily in uh, the UK side for most companies that I deal with. It does make me think, uh, I don't even know who the CEO of Adobe is. I don't know the name of the CEO. And that is probably a good thing for Adobe right now. But I know who the CEO of Tesla is. And uh, that person is like heading to court and involved in all kinds of fooling around. So Quiet is good. Maybe Adobe is wise to not be so Silicon Valley and just be nice and quiet. Exactly. Who's going to care? The SEC, the SEC is going after John Smith. It's like, I don't know who that is. But SEC goes after Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeffrey Bezos. Jeff Bezos is like, yeah, they're big names which are going to get the headlines. I think they'll sneak, sneak it past and it will go through. It'll be a bit of a shame for the industry, but you know, congrats to everyone that's invested in there because obviously they're going to make a complete packet. Unbelievable exit. Definitely. I mean, it's really a high valuation, so good for them. On a positive note, it does show that there are ways for startups to get fantastic purchase deals without having to go through an IPO and actually can get bought out for high valuation. So it is still nice to see that side of things still available. Yeah, absolutely. And... Just to summarize off uh, the last piece for me, for me, it was the Uber hack. Not actually the hack itself that caught my attention, just the number of cybersecurity job posts that were posted straight after the hack was announced, where it's like, oh no, now we need to deal with it. It's like, uh, was it the famous saying that organizations' budget for cybersecurity increases only after an incident? And obviously, Uber just proved that by obviously trying to now hire a load of security roles where they should have done this several years ago. There were a lot of hilarious tweets there was. Uh, in response to that. There was. And there's more hacks still happening at the moment now as well. So if you're in the security space, you know, you've got a very good career ahead of you, I'd say. But all right, just getting a little cynical. What, what do you think about this thought? What is the what is the material damage for a company getting hacked? Like Uber. What is going to be hacked? Do I really care if somebody steals my ride history? If they steal my credit card. I think my credit card is being stolen everywhere. We all have hack fatigue. Right? Everybody has everyone else's credit cards now. They don't really have any personal health data or anything. And I'm I just starting to wonder if companies are looking at this and thinking, we're playing cat and mouse with all of these hackers. We could spend hundreds of millions of dollars on security, but everybody seems to be getting hacked anyways. I wonder if it's better to just kind of phone in the security, not worry about it too much, not like you're abandoning it, but just do enough and then if you get hacked as a PR measure, suddenly you're hiring and doing something about it. But I don't know, is there any penalty for being hacked? Does anybody care anymore? Well, that's, that's a very evil mindset you've got there, Dave. Yeah. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just, it comes to mind, like, do we really care? 
that we got hacked? As a consumer, especially for something like Uber, you would do if you're, you know, it, they Uber knows your home location, your work location, when you're going to go see your, you know, the woman you're cheating on with uh, or something like that. You know, it knows your location information and your habits if you utilize Uber regularly. So therefore, as a consumer. I already give Google my cheating location. So, right? It's, it's another location. It's another system that's of concern. So... Yes, either we go, right, okay, no information can be considered safe. And, you know, we just got to take the repercussions if they if they come. But with after any of these hacks, there are always penalties that are given from some organization, be it Europe for GDPR or in the UK for like data protection release. And then the US have several too as well. But, you know, these are normally what, three, 400 million, which is like a drop in the bucket for these types of organizations. And... You know, essentially, you're right. If there isn't a large enough incentive for them to protect the data and protect the systems they're using, and the fines are willing to ex- are just being willing to accept to pay, then maybe reputational damage isn't that much of a concern anymore, considering everyone's getting hit by the same type of thing. Yeah, you're right. And you know, a, a less cynical perspective is that all these things are true. On one hand, everyone has hack fatigue. People don't care that much. I'm not going to stop using Uber because of this. I don't even really care. Everybody, someone else will be hacked next week. So there's that. Uh, but then I also see all these services and companies popping up everywhere. So somebody's spending more money on security. It's a huge topic. So companies are leaning into that. There is new regulation coming out. It's very difficult for the government to keep up, but it's happening in the EU, especially. And uh, so there does seem to be this fast-moving, you know, security uh, sort of world where there's a combination of more hacking all the time, uh, people getting used to it, companies fighting back. It's a cat and mouse game. I think just everything's happening at once. There's just more information every day and more people buying and selling it on the dark web. It's wild west. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're Uber? How do you find the balance? Everybody else is getting hacked. Are they supposed to spend $500 million to prevent getting hacked and then maybe still get hacked? Are they supposed to get hacked and then not put a bunch of embarrassing job posts up on LinkedIn? I think you just can't win. I thought that was going to be less cynical, but it might have been more cynical. Yeah, my mindset is you always go over convenience. So if there's a strong competitor in the market and and the competitor is the one that hasn't been hacked, you're more likely to go with them. Unless it's an organized, oh, I, I also go the other way sometimes. Oh, they've been hacked recently, so therefore they'll have, they'll have better security now because they've actually been burned by it. But do you really think about it? Right? I mean, uh, you know, I use Verizon for my mobile phone. They had a big hack. I'm happy to keep using Uber. I'm not sure that I really see being hacked as much of anything anymore. What annoys me most is like the dog dog go thing where they deliberately lie to you about a situation that I don't forgive in a situation of hacking you allow it once maybe twice to go okay these things happen it's a tough world out there but if it's like every week new hack new hack I mean like the Sony issue when that came out literally that dragged on for about a year didn't it with uh, further releases and more releases emails exactly it's just more and more and um, in a situation like that it's much harder to accept that your data is going to be safe Maybe it's what data it is, right? So if, if you if you leak out my credit card, maybe my ride history a little bit, That's I can see how that could be personal, but for most people, it's not too bad. But if all my emails were to be uh, released and I was an executive at Sony 
uh, or a doctor or any, any number of things, there could really be damage there. So maybe it's uh, context specific. And this is why I'm so cautious around any of this biometric data, anything you can't change. So, you know, where they want to, you know, take um, 3D models of your face or your fingerprints and stuff like that. It's just like, that's data you can't change. So if it goes out there, it's completely public, you're done for, there's nothing you can do about that. Where if it's your credit card, you can change your credit card. If it's your address and you're a high risk person, you can change your address. So it's, you know, it's it's that stuff that why I'm overly cautious, like with my iPhone, it's got, you know, facial recognition of it. I don't use that. I always have a pin code login. I don't use the finger scanners either, just because it's like, I know they've got very good security enclaves inside the chips and all that stuff. And it's just like, yeah, but still, all it takes is a very clever person to find a way around that that no one's done before. And then, you know, that data is publicly available. Hmm. I use all that stuff. I go the other direction. I, I just can't. I just have decided to not care too much. But I agree. You're probably right. I'm just too lazy to do it. Yeah, convenience, Dave. It's It, it wins out. It does win out, uh, and price as well. But And this is a wild tangent that we cannot go down. But is it possible that this topic of uh, uh, you know hacking and security and personal data, and then there being this kind of more important tier of data, which is your fingerprint, your DNA, your face, right, your identity, all of that. Might that be one of the first really interesting, legitimate uses for crypto? And I'm sorry to introduce that ridiculous, you know, statement, but there's a lot of interesting things happening with, uh, you know, soulbound NFTs and driver's licenses as NFTs and identification and healthcare data. I mean, it could actually work. There could be something there. Or is that nothing? So I'm actually even more skeptical about the whole blockchain and uh, DTL, uh, DLTs and stuff like that at the moment because I've just come off a conference where uh, the conference organizer actually is not following the ERC protocols that are in place with Ethereum. They're building their own and they're quite large, quite well funded using with large organizations. They're talking about cryptocurrencies where you can only purchase them for medical purchases. You can't do it for food. So in other words, not all coins are now treated equal. Coins now are going to have additional criteria to them and obviously that's going to build up and build up and make it even more complicated. And it's like, why are we even trying to utilize the blockchain? Why don't we just call an API, which is going to determine which money in your account can do what? So that's where I think the actual blockchain space is going. It's actually going away from its original origins of actually being affixed in a distributed manner where it can't be changed to cases where there's editable contracts or editable rule sets where they're going to be just edited on the blockchain and therefore all NFTs, coins or anything is then going to be able to change, you know, these rule sets will be determining what they can and can't do. And it just completely changes the entire market. So I don't know, I feel like I've I've been, I've, I've ruined my mindset for the Web3 space at the moment. I hope I get that spark back soon when I keep on looking into this a bit further. So in other words, it'll be a back where we started, but with a much more complicated architecture. That's very disheartening. Exactly. We're a big circle there, Dave. And, you know, let's turn people's heaters into nodes just so, you know, the data's actually not even being run by them. It's just been, you know, we have to pay to use to, for them to actually run the blockchain as well. We'll revisit this in a couple of years. Definitely. At least the merge worked. That was good. That's a very good point. The merge did work. The interesting thing about it is that gas fees are not cheaper. 
and I'm scratching my head about that. I haven't looked into it, but the plan before the merge was, yeah, gas fees are not going to reduce. So still, what on earth are we going to do with Ethereum when gas fees are still so high? I know it's supposed to be faster, it's better for the environment, but the gas fee issue is the biggest issue to stop that from working effectively in my mind. Baby steps. Baby steps. Let's see. Let's let's see what they're going to come up with next. How about this? At least we saw a um, well-handled, kind of successful, uh, mature approach to technology, security, testing, and quality in the blockchain space because we haven't seen enough of that. Um, there was no shenanigans, no tomfoolery. They actually got it done, and uh, it was an impressive merge. That was no no picnic. Absolutely. I'm giving it two more weeks before I start singing their praises just to see if anything else happens because I'm overly skeptical. Was, well, you never know. But yeah, so far, you know, you can't fault their ability to have done such a complicated task. So it is super impressive they've been able to achieve such a merge, even though it has been delayed year after year after year. Still, it's incredibly impressive they were able to change something in such a fundamental way from a proof of stake. Well, yeah, from a proof of work to a proof of stake. Yeah. It's, uh, I was happy to see it. <laughs> and then the price went down like 6% the next morning or something like that. Yes, because I think that was expected anyway. But yeah, it's still holding strong. But yeah, so from my perspective, I was expected to drop and everything to be much cheaper, but it hasn't happened. But let's see. Okay, we should probably sum up there. We've taken up everyone's time a bit too much. But yeah, so great talking to you again this week, Dave. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, for the listeners at home, do please check out techkitchen.io where you can join our community if you would like. So uh, thanks for your time. Enjoy your evenings. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Glenn.